Greetings, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. This episode is going to get on in just a moment, but before we meet up and chat with Sam Gendon for episode two of the Leo Panich tribute series, just kind of wanted to check in with you guys. You know, Joe Biden was inaugurated as president of the United States yesterday. We have a new era ahead of us as a socialist movement. Many of us voted for Joe Biden, and particularly those of you who are in swing states, we're already seeing the benefits of that change, despite the fact that we will remain opponents and adversaries of the establishment Democrats. Uh, there are some upsides to having a Democrat in the White House. We have seen his immigration policies announced, uh, first things first, overturning Trump's just disastrous and inhuman immigration policies, the Muslim ban, among many others, um, upholding DACA, you know, ensuring the stability and security of those who are undocumented here in our borders, within our borders, you know, and yet there are going to be a lot of challenges that lie ahead. A lot of people have spent a lot of time beating up on AOC over the forced to vote controversy and, and many other things. And yet AOC skipped the inauguration yesterday and she was walking a picket line in the Bronx defending a Teamsters strike. So, you know, what that's just to say that this is a new era. Uh, there are a lot of material gains from having a Democrat in the White House, particular a Democrat in the White House in a political conjuncture that has been largely defined by the left. The policies and uh, the the talking points that, you know, are dominant in the mainstream media right now have been authored and conditioned by the left, whether it's Medicare for all, whether it's a Green New Deal, whether it's a demand for greater stimulus in the economy, you know, regardless of the fact that, of course, mainstream Democrats will, you know, fake towards these policies in a variety of ways and give mealy mouth defenses of them while doing quite the opposite in reality, despite all of that, we have to stop and take stock of the kind of, <laughs> fuck, dare I say progress that we have made over the past four years and really just kind of just take that in for a moment. Take it in for a moment. I think that it's it's important to do that. You know, Bernie Sanders was defeated. Our, our movement was defeated in the Democratic Party primaries. There's no reason to believe that establishment Democrats will not continue to thwart us at every turn. And yet so much of the ground on which we are currently standing has been delivered unto us by the struggle that myself and many of you and many, many, many thousands of others have engaged in over the past 10 years. And I just think that we should take a moment to consider that. A lot of people were hemming and hawing about you know, the importance of a black South Asian woman in uh, the VP role. And I'm, yeah, fine, that's fine. Let's get that out of the way. Let's get that behind us. Of course, Labor MP in the UK, Faiza Shaheen, tweeted out yesterday a reminder saying that, you know, many of the ministers in Boris Johnson's cabinet are also people of color, people who look like her. Faiza Shaheen, of course, being someone of the BAME community in Britain. And these are good reminders. So let the libs have their day. We're going to get right back to work. I want us to all think about, you know, the example that AOC set for us yesterday, skipping the pomp and circumstance of the inauguration to walk a picket line with the Teamsters in her district in the Bronx. Thinking about you know, Bernie Sanders, now classic meme worthy 
posture sitting in his chair by himself in his signature green winter coat. Let's think towards that and use it as a model going forward. Now, Adam, you ask, why did you waste the first four minutes of this exciting episode to tell me to keep my chin up and be excited about, you know, the political moment that we're in amidst all of the reasons to be just utterly depressed and disappointed about the world that we're living in right now? I did so because I think that cynicism sells. I look out at this left media ecosystem that we are building, that we have been building for the past four to five, six years, some of us. And I'm seeing the proliferation of a lot of hot air, shock jockish cynicism. And this is coming from people with whom I otherwise often agree and, and I certainly respect. And I think the kind of shock jock approach that's often taken now by the likes of the Rising Crew, Crystal Ball and Cigar and some of these others, I'm sorry to say, Brianna Joy Gray and some of the cynicism sells. It no doubt sells. If you get people riled up and emotional and angry and upset and impressionistic and reactionary about certain topics and figures and subjects, then you know you, they identify with you. You can sort of create a crew of people who are similarly aligned in their anger and their emotion about a subject. And it works for building an audience. And I myself, as a participant in this left media ecosystem, has have many oftentimes been nearly seduced by this phenomenon that I'm spelling out here. But I want to encourage all of you to not give in to that. Don't give in to cynicism. Don't give in to single-issue nihilism. We are engaged in a long-term, complicated project. Sam Gendon and I are going to talk a lot about that in the coming episode, and I just want to urge all of you to have a measured and serious approach about politics going forward. We undoubtedly want to be an opposition inside the Democratic Party, and that's certainly outside, mostly outside the Democratic Party for the next four years, but we need not give in to impressionistic, cynical, uh, hyper-emotional appeals that are primarily focused on gaining a, a wider and more dedicated audience share. This is not politics. <laughs> this is media marketing. So enough of that public service announcement for today. As always, if you enjoy this broadcast, I'll just simply remind you that this show is free to listen to, but it is not free to make. My time is valuable and I need resources to continue putting out this show and building this project. So I encourage you to join our patrons by becoming a supporter of this program. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and smash a subscribe button at a level at which you are comfortable. There are many subscribe buttons there, multiple tiers, multiple levels. If you have benefited from DPS in any way over the past several years and you'd like to pay it forward, I encourage you to become a subscriber today. Thanks all you patrons past and present. On with today's show. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. I'm your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me for episode two of our tribute series to Leo Panich is one of Leo's greatest, certainly one of his longest held friends. He's been on the show multiple times, co-author with Leo in 
many, many articles, essays, of course, that all culminated in the book, The Making of Global Capitalism, and more recently, uh, The Socialist Challenge Today. Sam Ginnon, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. As we talked extensively off air prior to recording this interview, it's a, I wish we could have come to, to this chat on better terms. Uh, of course, the passing of Leo happened, uh, well, hell, a month ago today. Yeah. We're recording this on Wednesday, January 20th, a month after Leo's tragic, somewhat sudden passing. He was diagnosed with cancer earlier in the month, and uh, he contracted COVID while in hospital, and it took him quickly, as it has so many people, uh, as it has, uh, as of today, approximately 400,000 Americans alone in the United States. But it's no less tragic. And uh, as I mentioned last week, thoughts go out to his family and his closest friend, his dear uh, partner, Melanie. And I myself included among the legions of people who were mentored or inspired by Leo along his uh, illustrious life and career. Um, but, but Sam, you, uh, as, as Leo mentioned many times, were among the first people, uh, you know, who he encountered in a, in a explicitly Marxist sense. He leaned over to you in a classroom, if I'm not mistaken, and whispered to you or you whispered to him, uh, I think I'm a Marxist. Uh, how did that story go? Retell that for us. Yeah, no, we were, as I remember it, we were sitting in Latin class and very bored. He remembers it as we were in an economics class, which was at least equally bored. And he had just read the uh, preface to the introduction to political economy. And he turned to me and he said, he whispered, I think I'm a Marxist. Uh, and uh, a while later, he, he went on to, to, to LSC. And the next time I saw him, he reminded me of that and said how crude he was because that, uh, that actual introduction was Marx actually just laying out something quite crude. So he was he, he was seeing his introduction to Marxism as being too uh, rich and yet crude Marxism at the same time, which he was really excited about developing. Right. I guess I, I suppose if it was that uh, particular essay, it would have been the base superstructure uh, kind yeah, of uh, well, schematic uh, presentation. Exactly. Although, you know, I, I guess I, the important thing, you know, whenever you're thinking about where something comes from, it's so complicated. You know, we often go back and say, well, you know, what was your family like, or did you come from a working class family? But you, you end up finding out that people in the same family, like myself, some people turn out to be socialists and some don't. It's not, it's not all determinant. In Leo's case, you know, one of the, you know, place was so important. We grew up in North End Winnipeg, which had this left subculture. You know, it was where the Winnipeg general strike occurred in 1919. Uh, and uh, Gramsci actually referenced it at a demonstration in uh, Italy as one of the great events. Uh, workers took over the city. They decided who was going to get milk and everything else. And it was a working class immigrant culture, mostly Jewish, but a lot of Ukrainian as well. So so place mattered a lot. It was, you know, even without knowing it, when you grew up in Winnipeg, it was in the air. In the early 50s, when the McCarthy scare was on, even the North End, even in Canada, you know, there was... Uh, spillover of the McCarthy years, North End Winnipeg was electing uh, an, a communist alderman. So the place was really special. Leo grew up in a working class family. His father was a cutter. He was a unionist. Uh, he was an active social democrat, left labor Zionist. So that was important. And then, you know, we're growing up in the 60s. So the time was also important. And these things come together in a particular way. Mentors were important for 
Leo, just as Leo was a mentor to others. Uh, when we were at the University of Manitoba, uh, we were in a small seminar together. There must have been about five of us. And our prof, a guy called Saigonic, kept asking us, well, why do you think this happens? No matter what answer we gave, he'd say, yeah, but why did it really happen? And he'd say, well, what about power? Who had the power to make it happen? And he kept pushing us. And I remember, I think in 1962 or 63, he was chaining himself to the parliament buildings over Vietnam. Most of us didn't know where Viet, you know, anything about Vietnam yet. So there are those kinds of things that were influential. And then Leo had, of course, uh, Ralph Miliband uh, as a teacher and mentor. So there's so many things that go into making somebody. And, you know, and, and Leo developed over time. So, yeah, no, uh, everything added up to uh, making Leo. Right. Yeah. This is, I, I cherish this conversation. Um, you know, you yourself, as I mentioned in many other instances, are an extraordinarily accomplished guy. Although, despite your accomplishments, you've somewhat been working and writing under the immense, enormous shadow of, of Leo. But you yourself, I mean, you know, I, I said this the first time I had you on the show and in, in, in some way, but in part, to, to introduce you, specifically you and your contributions to, to, the, to the, the American left in my audience. And yet, uh, working under a, a giant like this guy must have been somewhat daunting. And, 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 and you know, you're, I just want to just point out, you know, how it's, it's um, laudable, your, your willingness to be an, an equal contributor and yet never overcome with jealousy or, or anything like that is, is, um, it's a, it's a, it's a breath of fresh air, Sam, (laughs) in our environment of, of, in a world where people are are hungry to be recognized and and seen as this sort of unique entity. Um, and I think that really speaks to the culture that you you just spoke to that you, that you came up in. It was, it was a collective culture and it's something that, uh, you know, makes me sad to hear because it makes me reflect upon how, Things have shifted, and and while we certainly don't want to be a culturalist, uh, we tie that to political economic transformations. I would presume a lot of the professors and teachers you had in the '60s um, were beneficiaries of the uh, you know the so-called sort of democratization of higher education following World War II, which um, you know is a big transformation that you and Leo talk about in your the making of global capital. Yeah, I, I should um, you know um, yeah you know what you're, what you're just raising about culture you know in, in terms of you know, what came out of that period is very important because, you know, aside from being part of what made us into socialists, in a climate where the socialism was almost taken for granted, what mattered was what kind of a socialist you were. You know, the range of social democracy, revolutionary socialist, whatever it was. Uh, but, but an appreciation for how important culture is in terms of class formation, that it isn't just about militancy or what policies when you think back on Winnipeg, it was just there. It was there in the air. And it poses the question of how to get that back. Because the whole history of the last few decades, especially, but not just the last few decades, has been this uh, remaking of the working class into a working class that fits into neoliberal capitalism. It's fragmented. It's individualized. It tries to survive through you know, individual survival whether it's debt or looking to lower taxes or staying at home longer if you're a young person. Um, And to recreate not just a sense of somebody understanding socialism, but a culture of being rooted in a culture is such a long-term project. And it means so much more than just kind of showing up at the occasional strike. Uh, And it just kind of is a lesson on how difficult it is to create a counter 
to capitalism. And it points very much to the need for a party to organize this. It is not something that just happens. And so I think the, the Winnipeg experience is also important, not just in terms of the background to Leo, but I think for Leo too, it uh, it was always a reminder of embedding yourself in the working class was part of creating a culture that was absolutely fundamental to working class formation. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, you know, putting Pandora back in the box or yeah. vice versa. It's hard to, you know, it, that, that type of challenge, um, you know, that lay ahead. But, you know, I think tying the emergence of that culture to the political economic uh, sort of long view as, as you and Leo did and the making of global capital capitalism is, is just so crucial because again, you can too easily get lost in culturalism, which is to uh, sort of, you know, um, separate culture from its political, economic, social kind of um, moorings. Mm -hmm. And so reproducing that culture will require us to, to fight for and, 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 reproduce something that looks like hopefully something better right as leo said so many times something better yeah. than the political economic uh, kind of um forms that that gave birth yeah. to that culture yeah. the, the other part of what you uh, raised adam is uh when you said the long view is that leo re really took the historical and historical materialism seriously history was very important to him it wasn't just a question of sitting down and trying to figure out the logic of capital he wanted to actually study the historical development, which means you end up having to look at institutions uh, and uh, you don't have a mechanistic view. When you look at history, you learn how complex it is. Of course, Marxism is so fundamental because it points you to things you should be looking at. But just, just in the same way that you learn that history changes, uh, you get a sense of, well, everything changes. Our categories have to be modified. Our strategy, our tactics have to be modified. And that was an important part of Leo. He was constantly uh, learning. In that uh, respect, I think it's a good, nice segue to turn to one of my favorite lectures, uh, presentations that you and Leo ever gave. And it, was, it had to be at least 10 years ago. It was one of my earliest introductions to you and Leo. And it was probably one of the, the, the times when I became most enamored by the, the, the variant of Marxism that uh, you and uh, he espoused. It was a, a memorial lecture, if I'm not mistaken, um, to Phyllis Clark, who was an academic, as you reminded me, at Ryerson, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, she was an active member of the Communist Party, and they have these lectures every year. And Leo was chosen to give the lecture as it's, it's a big honor. And he talked about how he's still a, a Marxist after all. And he talked about his very, you know, kind of um, interesting, idiosyncratic even version of Marxism. Um, it's very similar to... Uh, see, Ralph Miliband's Moving On essay was very famous, came out in uh, Socialist Register. I know it's now been reproduced in Jacobin. Mm -hmm. And if people haven't seen that uh, essay, Moving On essay by Ralph Miliband, they should really go back and revisit that. But Leo really tried to sort of take up from that. He quoted from it extensively, if I'm not mistaken. Um, although I've, I've, I've heard so much and read so much from the two of you, it's easy to get them muddled. But uh, I'd like to talk, like for you to expound upon you know, Leo's kind of presentation of what kind of Marxist he is after all of these years. And, and, uh, talk a little bit about the introduction that you gave him because you, you gave a really, a really, uh, impressive, I, I must say, introduction of, of him during that lecture as well. I wish I, uh, I wish I had it. I might be able to get it before we got, got off the air. Um, uh, this was, I was asked to introduce Leo and it was the first time I'd ever had to introduce Leo. 
uh, and I'm trying to remember some parts of it, but you know, one of the things I did mention was uh, I was at some conference and a, a very famous Marxist, I won't give his name, but he was a famous Palancian Marxist. And I overheard him talking to some people and he said, there's only two people in the world that I'm afraid of, my mother and Leo Panitch, <laughs> which I found interesting. And I, I you know, I, I hadn't thought about this, but when you raised it, I, I remember the other thing I mentioned at the time in terms of Leo's international presence and the spread of his ideas. Leo and I were going to give a, to meet with the South African trade unionists. And uh, we got to South Africa. They were uh, different factions of the labor movement were meeting together at a conference, uh, trying to uh, create a united front across all of them. And we we pull up, they, they, they pick us up at the airport, they drive us full speed, they say there's an important debate, you can't miss this. We pull in front of the hall, there's a guy waiting there, he opens the door, he grabs Leo by the arm, and he says, you got to get in there quickly. They're debating theories of the state. This is unionists debating theories of the state. And, and they're having a, a big debate, and both sides are quoting you. <laughs> I thought that was, uh, yes. that was very telling. Anyways, I couldn't think of, you know, other than kind of traditional, wonderful cliches about Leo, uh, I, I couldn't think of how to introduce them. So I, I took, uh, I took a, uh, a song from the Pirates of Penzance about the very model of a major general. And I changed it into the very model of a public intellectual. And I applied it to Leo and, uh, when Brian contacted me about doing the intro for Leo, our family had just rewatched The Pirates of Penzance. I took the timing of this invitation as a sign and decided to add a brief Gilbert and Sullivan-esque conclusion. It's called The Very Model of a Public Intellectual. Bear with me. No, I, I'm not, don't worry, David, I'm not saying that. With Miliband, Poulancis, and those erstwhile Marxists radical, our panic quick disposed of theory that was only fatical, rejected the myopical or solace in the cynical, and cast off our reliance on belief apocryphilical. <laughs> Though capital is to be read with sympathetic piety, analysis demands of us abstemious sobriety. The genius of Marx was not that of a Delphic oracle, but offering the clues of class, state, and the material historical. <laughs> Revolutionary theory is indubitably logical, yet theory dies a lonely death if it's not pedagogical. And practice, unlike theory, does not come without sabbatical. To tie theory, learning, doing for Leo is thus emphatical. Socialism is at best a distant actuality. The dream of transformation lives beyond our brief mortality. And so what lies behind the breath of Leo's great accomplishments is his conviction that he lived the future in the present tense. Scholar, teacher, activist, and comrade with a life that's full, I introduce to you the very model of a public intellectual. I think Gindin missed his calling. <laughs> I think the... It, it, it's so important to see Leo as a public intellectual. You know, you can think of him as an intellectual, which, you know, obviously all these achievements, uh, or as an activist. And uh, we think of him as a teacher, which was absolutely crucial because 
he loved teaching. He really loved it. He, he turned to me after his last seminar and said he never realized how much he loved teaching. And it wasn't just nostalgic. It was kind of, he liked it so much, he wasn't even paying attention to it. He realized how much he liked it. And he was so good at it. It was at so many levels. You know, he, for his undergrads, it was about opening their eyes to a new world, even if he wasn't going to see them again. And a lot of them would, you know, I got notes from people who were in one of those classes and didn't actually become a socialist, but they remember it. Uh, for his Marxist students and his grad students, he was trying to develop them into Marxists and socialists uh, and to create a new, you know, a, a richer Marxism and a richer politics. Um, but the public intellectual was really about trying to create a new common sense on the one hand by doing interviews like with you and with others, and also internationally trying to share the knowledge that he had accumulated over the years, but at the same time, always trying to share it in a way that he was learning what was going on, because he'd often be invited to a place where there was some kind of crucial struggle going on, whether it was around Momentum and Corbin or Syriza or Nicaragua or in Brazil or with a landless movement. Uh, inevitably, Leo would be called in to give a talk on socialism or democracy. Uh, and this was an important part of Leo's international work. Because, in fact, there are limits to what we can do in supporting struggles abroad. And that's obvious because we can't even, we're not even very good at struggling at uh, responding to them domestically. So there's the question of, you know, if you've got, Steelworkers, you know, private and public sector workers aren't particularly united and unions competing over who to unionize, who's going to be the union and get the dues. You can't expect much solidarity with people from a different culture miles away that you don't know facing a different context, etc. So one of the things to really get out of internationalism, two things I'd say. One is that you see these different developments most of which end in failure, some in a partial victory, but most of them ended up in failure as kind of experiments that we can learn from. Instead of what often happens on the left is we think this is it, this is the real revolution. And then when it disappoints us, we move on to the next place. Uh, Leo insisted on, let's learn from this. That's the key. Something happened here and we have to learn the strengths and the limits. And that was an important part of internationalism, actually soberly. Instead of trying to inspire each other by saying, this is the real revolution now, and now it's coming everywhere, soberly look at it. That's one lesson. The other thing I think, which I've always tried to emphasize about internationalism, is one of the best things we can do is really stir up a lot of shit in our own countries, because that creates space elsewhere. If we're really fighting uh, in Canada or the United States, that creates space for other people to fight. If we're making gains, they can make gains. And if we're making concessions, we're basically undermining people elsewhere. So internationalism, in that sense, starts at home. That's where you have to start it with. And that gets back to what, you know, a lot of Leo's work was about, which was identifying the state as the site, as the key site, site of struggle. Even though we're living in a globalized era, you had to understand that the state was the key site. And that meant understanding the state under globalization. Uh, and the whole question of empire. You know, and so many people, of course, you know, uh, when Leo <laughs> is, you know, sort of getting to his thesis is still a, ma uh, still a Marxist rather after all these years, still a Marxist after all, 
which you mentioned uh, got some airplay in, in the mainstream press. This was uh, in t- approximately 2010, which you know the financial collapse was was still very hot in the press, and uh, some of the reactions, the economic and political reactions, were still kind of up in the air. This is Occupy. You know, perhaps even at that point, Occupy had not yet even exactly kicked off. I don't remember you guys talking about the movement of the squares, which which leads me to believe that it hadn't really happened yet. No. This um, was before. And so, and so, yeah, I mean, all the the the, the next decade that would um, involve so much, you know, <laughs> uproar in, in that realm uh, hadn't even yet kicked off, and. And uh, and yet when Mar- Leo says, you know, still a Marxist after all these years, still a Marxist after all, a lot of Marxists would say, well, you never were a Marxist. What are you talking mm-hmm. about? <laughs> you know, yeah. so, um, well, you know, Leo would sometimes turn to me and say that, too. He, he would say <laughs> right. people aren't calling me a Marxist and I'm not sure I am. But, yeah, yeah. you know, I, 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 I didn't even bother arguing with him because it was such a ridiculous point. And, you know, what it was right. about was the test of being a Marxist was what your position was on the labor theory of value or productive and unproductive labor or whether finance was productive or a parasite. And what, what, you know, what Leo's Marxism was about, and you can see it in what he actually studied. I mean, he studied the state primarily because that was the site of politics, if you wanted to change things. And, you know, that became a theme later on for us that, you know, the shift from protest to politics, the decade that you referenced, from Occupy, you know, up to Sanders. What what began to happen was protest and movementism began to recognize that you had to address the state. And that was a very important development, even if it, you know, you can question how far it went, but that in itself was an important thing. So one, you know, so this was crucial to Leo, understanding the state. And in an era of globalization, you had to ask, well, is the state still relevant or does internationalization bypass the state? So that was one crucial uh, focus of Leo. The other was that, uh, you know, you know, any notions of a mechanical breakdown of capitalism were to him ridiculous. You needed an agency. And you couldn't just see, well, they're an agent, you know, the working class is militant and it'll be a profit squeeze and then the thing will fall apart. You had to actually have an agency that was self-consciously trying to create a new world with a new vision. And that was fundamental. So he was always trying to study class formation, how it happened, you know, how the working class was unmade, not just made, but made in, uh, you know, in ways that fit capitalism and fit neoliberal capitalism. And so this was a crucial part of his Marxism, the dynamism of this. There was nothing automatic about it. Even militancy didn't necessarily mean it was socialist. And even union democracy, you know, could only be people saying, yeah, I want a democratic union. I don't want my union running around doing other things. I want them to represent me. So so Leo was very concerned with agency, and he never believed that agency just happened, which got him to the party question. You know, so so he studied the British Labour Party. One of the things he was always critical of was we never studied parties uh, deeply enough. You know, Michelle's did in terms of the Iron Law, but we tended to either write them off as Leninism is dead or the Bolsheviks screwed up or social Democrats always fail. And Leo was kind of begging for, can we really get inside and study them and how this happens? Because the, the danger was, uh, you know, the real task was to transform the state. It wasn't just to get elected. The revolution starts when you start transforming the state, not when you get elected. And transforming the state was such a difficult question because it was a capitalist state. It emerged out of 
you know, a long history of coping with capitalist problems. It didn't have the capacity to plan, never mind plan democratically. So the challenge to the you say, you know, and asking what will unions do inside the state? These were such big questions. And this is what, and this to him, you know, were the big questions. And to me, that's completely what Marx, real Marxism is about. It's about history mm-hmm. and change and class and power and the state and agency. You know, th- these are the real Marxist questions. And uh, yeah, the rest was relevant but often secondary. Right. Yeah. So you saw the, the trap of theoreticism, the trap of uh, talking about different tendencies and different strategies and historical movements and abstraction, you know, yeah. and, and uh, to, apart from history. And of course, then this kind of a, uh, it's called economism might ruffle a few feathers in the audience. Sorry, guys, self-included. I, I revealed to him one time on the way to a, I believe it was an event, or perhaps we were going to go like eat an, eat a whole fish, eyeballs included, uh, much to my horror, uh, at some restaurant in Toronto. <laughs> I know you came along for more of those than you could remember at this point. Um, Leo loved food. I talked to Max Shanley yeah. about this. Max is going to come on the show here in a week or so. Good. And uh, one thing we want to talk about yeah, is Leo. Ma- Max will tell food. you some good stories about Leo food. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, if you know Leo and you, you're fortunate enough to be, you know, no, that's that's a part of him that you are familiar with. And uh, anyway, I was in the back of his uh, a crew of us, uh, his 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 students, his Leo's kids, which is always kind of a, a big honor to be one of Leo's kids. I was it was one of the honors of my life, one of the thrills of my life. And uh, maybe Paul Gray. I'm not, I hope I'm not telling on any of them. They've all been on the show. Uh, Paul Gray may have been in the front seat. Maybe Steve and I, and that were in the back. Perhaps Adam Hilton. You know, all like you know, very serious professors now. But we were once Leo's kids, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, I revealed to him that I had studied Capital Volume Two with uh, Rick Wolf in, in mm-hmm. New York City at one point, you know, around 2009. And Leo just well, that's very impressive, Adam. That's I, I must reveal to you. I've I've I myself have never even read Capital Volume Two, <laughs> you know? and and you know so I even now with him being gone, I feel like I'm telling on him or something. But but that's precisely the point, isn't it? Um, that that Marxism for Leo was never about being able to recite the economic categories or the uh, you know or or um, having the right sort of uh, concepts, sort of theoretically threaded together, uh, was it? Um, and, and this is just very unpalatable to many people who call themselves Marxists even today. Yeah, I guess, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, Leo was a good theoretician. I mean, he really mm-hmm. did want to understand, but it always had to be linked right. to why does he want to understand this? I mean, even the second volume, I think that uh, later on in life, Leo came across somebody making an argument from the second volume of Capital, which he found really intriguing. He went back and actually started reading parts of it. And I think he actually quoted it someplace. But yeah, he did like, uh, you know, theoretical grandstanding on its own. And I think a lot of people would have considered the work we did as kind of mid-level theorizing. We didn't go back to basics, but we did see ourselves as doing you know, serious theory. We wanted to really understand the state. We want to understand crises, but yeah, in 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 a richer way, uh, because that's the only way to understand them. If you really want to understand them, I, you know, uh, Adam Adam Hilton, uh, one of his students, uh, was actually speaking at something at York last week, and he made the point that okay, Leo was a socialist and a Marxist, but he was actually a great political scientist. 
And I thought that was a very interesting thing that a lot of us forget. He could, you know, he could he could take bourgeois political science and pull it apart, not because they weren't Marxist, but because it was lousy political science. And Marxism right. helped them see that because Marxism was, yeah, it was about the real world. It was about, you know, it included the notion of capitalism. It included, you know, the notion of classes. It didn't, it didn't take anything uh, for granted as the natural world. That's right. I mean, t- too many Marxists, I think the cliche now, sort of whether you're approaching culture or any other work of literature or, or nonfiction, you know, you, you sort of, uh, the end of the conclusion is always, well, I, I hereby, uh, uh, you know, announce this book, this movie, this whatever, uh, to be insufficiently Marxist. <laughs> and, and of course, for Leo, that was always beside the point. Yeah. Um, whether it was or wasn't Marxist enough or whether it was or wasn't socialist enough wasn't the point. The point was to use those as tools, as instruments to understand, to really grasp hold of of the argument and then therefore pick it apart on its own terms, pick it apart on objective terms of, of just, you know, does this accurately reflect uh, reality as, as we know it, as we see it, as we can measure it. And so, yeah, that was that was something I, I absolutely took away from him. It was a very non-dogmatic um, approach in that sense while, while being still – fairly orthodox, you know, and, uh, you know, not never straying in that, in that sense, really important stuff. So let's move on to the arguments that the two of you made in the making of global capitalism. And, um, you know, Steve Marr was on the show, you know, last week and, uh, you know, I, I shared, I believe in my eulogy to Leo at the time of his death, I shared with my audience, I you know, said this, this is a uh, very high praise <laughs> coming from me or anyone, uh, but I, I, I do think, I, I mean it. I've had a, I've had almost a month now to think about it, and I, I mean it still, is that I think the making of global capitalism is the most important book of state theory ever written. And people say, well, what do you mean, Adam? There isn't really much theory in there at all, aside, uh, save for you know a couple of footnotes in the introduction. But that's precisely the point, isn't it? Really uh, building on what we've been talking about is the way to do theory is to use it as as a roadmap, as as a way of um, as a way of mapping the terrain of struggle and the sort of historical trajectories and contradictions, such that um, you know we can understand the world that we live in today and and, and how we might change it. And so, you know, and of course, then Steve sort of won up to me and said, I think it's one of the most important books written in English in the last hundred years. And I I mean it. And I think he means it. And so I think that one of the reasons I wanted to do this uh, series and have you on today is to really continue to kind of expound upon that argument and talk about what it means for socialist uh, struggle today, because it really does encapsulate so much of what Leo's project was about and yours. And um, and it's, it's, it's just desperately needed on the socialist left today, given all of the challenges that we have in front of us. It's, uh, you know, bears remarking upon that, uh, you know, Joseph Biden was sworn in as president of the United States today. This is Wednesday as we record this. And you're talking about the making of global capitalism. It's a very historically specific moment where the American state developed the capacities to ground a new um, sort of a new regime of, of global capitalism which is not this sort of empty system that can be taken up and wielded by other hegemons quite simplistically, as you see when, you know, related to China. Oh, is China going to be, is, is China going to just take over? Uh, you know, it's as, as though I believe it's um, one of Leo's former colleagues, uh, you know, Hannes Locker calls this the Pez dispenser model of hegemonic secession, right? You just sort of push the button and one one country pops up and another country uh, you know exits. The American state really had to make this 
thing that we now call global capitalism and ground it and continue to make it and have the and develop the capacities to to manage it not only externally you know internationally but also domestically which includes crushing its working class uh, independence in the 1970s and 80s when it became a problem for the continuation of the kind of monetary you know political economic demands placed on a global hegemon there's just so much here and it's just so rich maybe kind of take us back to the beginning and talk about how this became a question for you, how this gap, uh, this inadequacy of how people were thinking about global capitalism and hegemony and all the rest of it, how that really first came into, into perspective for the two of you. I mean, you know, as, when I was working in the union, uh, Leo and I had always talked about doing a book together, and this became the book. And part of it was, uh, part of it was actually being Canadian, because we're kind of, we were confronted with the question of, what is Canada's relationship to the U.S.? And it wasn't a relationship of uh, we were a colony of the United States. It was a sovereign country. And it wasn't because of military power that they occupied us or threatened to. And so that raised, uh, you know, that raised questions about state sovereignty and the role of states. That I'll get back to this, but, but those kinds of questions led to thinking about a new kind of empire. So. You know, that was there. And then I remember around the turn of the century, Daimler was looking at taking over Chrysler. And I was calling Leo to say, everyone's now going to say this is the end of the American empire. The Germans are taking over. And I thought, no, the Germans are trying to get into the empire. And I called Leo and I started telling him about this. And he interrupted me to say, this has got nothing to, you know, kind of impatiently. This has got nothing to do with the, taking over the American empire, they're trying to get in. And so we both kind of saw that there's a way this is going to be interpreted that is wrong. And that's because there isn't a concept of empire. So, so let me just ramble a bit by going back a step. If you look at the first half of the century, of the uh, last century, it looked like globalization was impossible. It looked like internationalization was impossible. You had, in a half a century, you had two world wars and a Great Depression. If anything, it looked like not only was international capitalism not possible, maybe capitalism wasn't possible if this is all it could produce. So the point was that capital, global capitalism had to be made. And, you know, in the, in the Communist Manifesto, uh, people quoted Marx a lot for saying capitalism would go everywhere, nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, and create a world in its own image. And this was seen as Marx really being incredibly perceptive. You know, the Atlantic, the New Yorker were quoting Marx around the time of the great financial crisis for him uh, understanding globalization, or in the 90s even. But Marx was actually missing something. He was missing the fact that there might be this tendency, but it didn't mean it would happen. Uh, what, if, what if you bring the state into this discussion, which Marx hadn't done? If you bring the state in, then there's the possibility of states politicizing competition between capitals and saying, we're going to keep some out. We're going to create some of our own empires so we have access to resources which other capitals won't get on as favorable terms, etc. So actually, the making of an internationalized capitalism is actually to be problematized. And we started problematizing it by looking at it historically, by actually looking at how this changed. Like, you know, by the, by the 1920s, the U.S. was you know, the dominant industrial power in the world, and it was financially the strongest. It wasn't as sophisticated 
as London in some ways, but it had, you know, the savings and the funds. And yet it never thought about creating a new kind of empire. All it wanted was to open up the other empire so it could get in. And somehow through the 30s and the 40s and into the, well, really through the war, the notion of a different kind of empire began to emerge. And also they, 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 they had the, they had the capacities to think in those terms. They didn't have those capacities before. Just being big and strong didn't ha- give you those capacities. Those capacities developed through the New Deal, where the state began to play a bigger role in uh, domestically, and that developed skills that could be internationalized. They learned from the experience of the Second World War in terms of the dangers of not changing this world, that you would have other countries that would emerge and say, through militarism, we're going to get our resources or expand our borders so we can have markets. So we began to study that process. And what was emerging was a notion of empire that wasn't territorial. It wasn't just saying there were other big empires and now the United States is going to be number one. It was doing away with this notion of number one, number two, et cetera. This was qualitatively different. The U.S. would accept and support the idea of sovereign states who would make their own decisions. And it accepted the fact that who got what was going to depend on competition through markets, the free flow of capital and trade. The U.S. wouldn't just dictate that it could do all the manufacturing for the world. It accepted that. And it accepted that in order to do this, it couldn't just announce it one day. It actually had to have a period of grace that let other countries, you know, restore the balance of class power after the war, restore their institutions so they could be protectionists for a while. But it was going to let them into the U.S. market so they could start developing as capitalists. It accepted the fact that this was mostly going to be a focus on the old empires because that's what they wanted to integrate. They wanted to integrate all the old empires into a new global capitalism, which the U.S. superintended. The rhetoric was anti, actually anti-imperialist. They said, we, have, we can't have imperialism anymore. We can just have capitalism on a global scale. And domestically, it was crucial to integrate their own working classes. There was a lot of militancy after the war, and they couldn't crush it and weren't looking to crush it. They were looking to channel it into consumerism, as opposed to class struggle or you know different kind of life, uh, greater emphasis on the public. That required a welfare state, but the welfare state was supplementary to, in, in every way that it was formed, supplementary to uh, society based on individual consumption. And that was the model that they were going to sell to the rest of the world. You know, they, they would bring in mm-hmm. groups of trade unionists, for example, from Britain and from Germany and from France to the United States to show them how American production was organized, to kind of indoctrinate them into, you got to help them make the pie bigger. And then when the pie's bigger, you can share in it instead of fighting over the distribution of the pie. Well, the, the main impact of that, some, some of that impacted directly on that lesson. But what really happened was while they were in the United States, they went to shopping malls uh, and they actually saw individualized consumption for themselves. And they wanted to come back and have that kind of consumption. So at that point in time, uh, unions were being integrated and making gains, real gains in terms of you know, the, the social welfare provisions, unionization. But as militancy over consumption, and the question of the working class was always important. As you said, that, you know, what happens in the 70s is workers who are comfortable began to protest, won't accept authority, and that creates a crisis. 
And then they couldn't just legitimate things that way anymore. They had to actually crush workers. And from then on, you don't, le- you don't legitimate capitalism by what it is going to deliver in terms of steady progress. You actually, quote, legitimate it by saying, you know what, guys? This is it. You don't have a choice. It's fatalism. This is the world. There's no other world. That's right. And that's what neoliberalism essentially did. But eventually, it ends up creating a, you know, a crisis of frustrations. So, so before getting to that, which I want to get to, in dealing with this, it was very important to work through the state question because, on the one hand, it was the American state and thinking through how did this happen in the American state? How did the Federal Reserve come to play this role? Uh, how did the dollar come to play this role? How did how did uh, capitalists? fight internally and kind of accept that they, they can't be protected. Small capitalists can't be protected. Right, right. And, and through this, the study of it shows that over time, different parts of the state carried more weight. Sometimes it was the Treasury, sometimes it was the Fed, sometimes it was the State Department. So, so that's one kind of question, asking those kinds of questions. But the other part of it, this was that it also depended on the states themselves being part of it. That around this riddle of how can you have national states but international production, when the two are supposed to be related in some way, even if it's not completely crudely, the answer is, well, nobody, it's not that somebody figured it out, but what actually developed historically was that the states became internationalized. They began to see themselves as having to take responsibility for global capital, for globalization within their own territory. And you see that, you know, it meant that you create, you create a favorable environment with labor to track capital. You abide by certain rules, like not shooting other capitalists and treating all the capitalists the same. And that was critical because that was part of an actual national justification for globalization. If we enter globalization under the aegis of the, of the US, which is attractive, look what it's done for the US, we will get access to those incredible American markets. They're so profitable. They're so big. And we'll get access to American technology. We need it. And American corporations will come here. And then our corporations will learn. And we'll develop our own bourgeoisie out of that, too. So there was a national justification for it. Globalization was never uh, rationalized, or it didn't matter much if it was, by uh, the IMF or the World Bank or the United Nations or even the United States. The United States couldn't go into Canada and say, listen, this is good for you. There was enough nationalism around that people would mistrust it. It had to be done by national states. Now, the reason that I raise that is it's actually very relevant to the nationalism that we see today. And Leo and I didn't really uh, write about this until we did a piece on uh, Trump, trumping the empire in the Socialist Register. And what we argued there was once you understand that it's not just it's not just the state making the conditions for globalization. It's the state always doing, legitimating it in nationalist terms. Now, we didn't spend a lot of time in the book on what happens in the third world, other than to say it's going to be a lot harder in the third world. The empires, you know, in the first world, the institution existed already. They had markets, they had capitalist institutions to integrate them. And that was the priority in terms of ending the old world of fragmented capitalism, of capitalism fragmented into empires. And then the project would spread into the third world, which we understood to be more difficult, and and maybe we can get to China in a second. But the, the point was that because nationalism was always part of how you justified it, it really opened the door to saying, well, wait a second, it's not working. We're not getting all the benefits. 
And that suddenly, and that suddenly raises the question of, well, what kind of nationalism? And, exactly. you know, so in some cases, it's, you know, you can imagine a left nationalism that is saying, no, this is about corporations and their power and their freedom. We want, you know, an internationalism that's different, that's based on planned economies and planned trade. But that's not what happened, because part of neoliberalism was the defeat of the left. It wasn't just a defeat of unions. It wasn't just a lowering of expectations. It was a massive defeat of the left. So there wasn't a left. And so the right could do this. But, you know, it could play to that nationalism. It could play to that frustrations. So the left has a, has a contradiction, which is that even when Biden comes into power now, and even if Biden wants to do decent things, and even if he has to do them for a while, just because the crisis, you know, the pandemic is such a unique crisis. It's not about a profitability scare or a wage squeeze or a financial fall. It's about the fact that you actually had to stop the economy to deal with the pandemic. So Biden has to do all kinds of unusual things that people say is the end of neoliberalism. But that's temporary. You know, once this is over and things get stabilized, the question is going to be, well, how do we pay for all of this? And if you want to do good things like the environment, how can you pay for all of what you just did, all your debt, and do all this new infrastructural environmental things? And, you know, Biden will tax the rich a bit more. But to really do this, you have to tax them an awful lot more. And so the point is that options have been polarized. And, you know, the Democratic Party is not about taking on those polarized options and doing something radical. They fought Sanders and said they don't want universal health care, never mind socialism. They, uh, you know, they, you know, they, they're not putting on the agenda, making it easier to unionize or even, you know, imagine an economy that's 80% unionized rather than 10%. They're tinkering with making labor laws more friendly. And even the labor movement, even the unions aren't demanding the card check in the United States because they even see it as, you know, way out of bounds. And there isn't a left to push Biden. I mean, Biden just isn't going to do that kind of radical stuff, even if he means well. These are radical things. And the left just isn't there yet. You know, as the left everywhere, including in England and, and Syriza, in none of those places did the left have much of a base in the, in, amongst workers which is another issue to get to. Let, let's unpack this. This is, this is, I, I, can, I, I, add this, one, I, can I add one thing oh, before yeah, please, we unpack please, it? Please. And, yeah, and then I, then I'd really like to stop because I think there's so many questions that I'm. No, this is, this is a masterclass in uh, all of these things. And I think we can go back and, yeah, and really, whatever, yeah, no, I'm really depending on you to, to give me a reading of what needs elaboration. But I do want to say that the contradiction is always also on the right. The right can come to power through playing on people's frustrations. And we don't know how long that could last. But it can't deliver the goods because it isn't ready to take on capital, never mind capitalism. You know, its populism is okay in attacking a particular corporation or in a populist critique of banks. But never do you hear them really taking those things on. They may say, you know, you know so like with Trump, the argument was, we carry too much of the burden of globalization. And they did. Working people and others did carry a burden. But it's never we have to get rid of it. It's never we have to put corporations under public ownership or have capital controls. It's about we have to, ha we have to use our power to get a better deal. And if you look at the China thing, for all the mobilization around China, in the end, Trump could not bring jobs back. He didn't bring manufacturing jobs back. 
The communities that were destroyed in the Midwest are still destroyed. Uh, because to do that, you'd have to, you know, again, it's the polarization of options. You'd have to do some radical things, which he never intended to do. And his biggest push on China has ended up to be open up. All this has ended up to be very much about bargaining. There's some concern about the military and China's technologies, technological use in the military. But what Trump ended up doing was pushing China to agree to open up its markets to high tech American manufacturing, which does nothing for the Midwest, and to financial services. In other words, to more liberalization and more globalization. And China for itself is no country has ever been so dependent on the international economy as China is. China doesn't want to destroy this golden egg that its legitimacy depends on. China wants America to act like a responsible empire instead of doing these erratic things all of a sudden. They want to increase their status within the empire. They want, they, they do want to be recognized as having a greater role, but not to, not to challenge the U.S. And part of the reason they don't want to challenge the U.S. is because they really don't want to take on all the stuff about what's happening in the world. They have enough problems at home. But also to take on the U.S., Iran Mibi would have to become a world currency, which would mean liberalizing it. People would have to know that the Communist Party isn't going to step in whenever it wants and change the rules. Well, the Chinese Party can't do that because that's how they they'd have, the to accept, they'd have to accept the handcuffs, yeah. the handcuffs of the liberalization exactly. of a currency. Exactly. That's the right way of putting it. And, and they don't want to accept those handcuffs because, you know, the fact that it's not a democracy, it's not legitimated democracy, it's, democ- it's legitimated by it can deliver, which is what it needs globalization for, and it can control the economy. And it controls, and if it can't control the economy because its handcuffs are on in terms of finance, it's in real shit. And they know that. So China doesn't want to replace the US. So that's kind of where we're at in this fascinating moment where the right has contradictions, the left has contradictions. A lot of the right contradictions are getting pretty scary, which we should turn to. But if the left fails, those contradictions are great too. There's opportunities for the left, but you know, is, is the left able to move on those, you know, opportunities. These all these questions, which uh, you know, if if Lee were watching, this is what he'd be in the middle of. That's right. That's right. That, again, I mean I I am I said it at the beginning, I'll say it again. I am just ab- eternally grateful that you are still with us, Sam, uh, to to lay this out in the way that, you know, like I said, now Leo can no longer lay it out and you are as capable, if not more in, in some ways, to to break to bring out that long view. Um um, and, and again, it's something that, my God, if if I haven't uh, popularized this stuff on the left, at least the, the niche left that, that listens to the DPS, uh, then that's something I'd, I'd like to do in the, in the coming weeks because it's so critical to understand this. And Leo's passing has made me reflect on how you know, I said this in my eulogy that uh, I only had Leo in a couple of times. Um, first of all, because he was so prolific on the podcast and he, he's on um, the Henwood show quite a bit. He had his own segment on the real news for a while. Um you know, and he was just uh, very um, present, you know, in this kind of new left media ecosystem. I have, in I have, really to, tell you, ways, I have so. to tell you, Adam, when you when you say that, just it just reminds me of, you know, what Leo was like on this. Um, I hate doing interviews and, we, <laughs> and Leo loved doing them. And I can remember phone yeah. calls. You know, if I have an interview, not in this case, because it's, it's just kind of wrapping and I'm very comfortable with it. But if I'm really being interviewed, I'm, I'm always trying to think about what should I focus on? How should I put it? I'm, I'm I'm wrestling with it in my mind for uh, a day. I'd be talking with Leo 
and he'd say to me, shit, it's two minutes to four. I'm on a four on an interview and I need a minute. So we got to wrap up our conversation because I need a minute to prepare myself. <laughs> and that, you know, and, and you know, that yeah. was Leo, the, you know, he, he had actually, he had developed a tremendous skill in doing that and, and making it accessible. But I, but I do want to say part of Leo's legacy is that he's actually passed on a lot of the understandings through his students and others who interacted with him uh, of, you know, an alternative theory of empire and states and and parties, uh, you know, that there's a lot of people can speak to now. And you had Steve on uh, recently, and Steve is quite, you know, terrific at that as well. Yep, Steve and I have Max Shanley and again yep. Adam Hilton's gonna yep. has agreed to come on yep. to talk about his great book, which is in no small part influenced by all of this. And yep. and again, yeah, as I, as I sort of brought on this little tangent, you know, myself, uh, you know, I I only had him on a couple times. Yeah, part of it was because I felt like, as many people probably did, I felt like um, he was in high demand, and I felt like I had my time. I was one of his students, you know, and we spent a lot of time together for for a year and a half, and I felt like okay, I, I had my turn. I'll let others. Have have their have their shot at you know uh, Leo at, at being you know close to him and asking him questions and I'll sort of take a back seat now and, and but it made me re- his passing made me realize how everything that I say everything <laughs> that I say on this program whether he's on it or not and he was mostly not uh, just totally infused with the kind of stuff that we're talking about right now and uh, it couldn't be any more important for others to sort of get get a grasp of that because I don't have any there's no special sauce in my delivery there's no special sauce in my knowledge I'm a I'm a PhD dropout at this point proudly so I should say um, you know engaging in the real struggle trying to reach real people now um, but uh, but you know this is important stuff and so let's 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 peel back and and unpack some of this stuff and just to, before we do that I'll say the, the way you ended really encapsulated the entire the entire um, apparatus as you just unveiled it over the past 10 or 15 minutes and it was in such a beautiful way and that you you asked the question you know trump's understanding of say nafta uh, globalization is just getting a bad deal he could get in here uh, four years ago today <laughs> and get a better deal right but you know it, it sort of i scrawled down this question as you were sort of pointing out the contradictions entailed in the american right uh, today what if getting a bad deal as trump would put it is actually one of the capacities required for superintending this 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 global capitalism, mm-hmm. right? I mean that that's something that um, well, it's, just it's a good question. I mean, paradoxical. Yeah, it's paradox. It just well, wouldn't. Well, of course. Well, if you're the hegemon, yeah. why would you accept a bad deal? You should be in charge. You should be leading the way, and you should get things. Your and this is something that the American left, uh, the North American left, the global left seems to miss quite a lot and they they only conceptualize imperialism and empire in and on the terms that actually gives uh the u.s a comparative advantage yeah yeah uh, so, oh of course america has this and that because they're the yeah, obviously this that's imperialism yeah. no. well the america the american working class is also hobbled at, at, at you know at, at rates unseen in the rest of the western world because of american empire so how do we understand that how do we understand that the fact that american workers got served a bad deal precisely because america is well, as the is the hegemon yeah these are, these well, are it's, it's a good question and I, I yeah there's a lot of dimensions to it i mean one one thing is that uh yeah being being you know be, having the responsibility of superintending global capitalism also means a certain amount of discipline on you. Uh, 
Now, I, th- I think there's a certain amount of leeway. Like if everybody accepts that we need somebody superintending this, I'll give you an example, the crisis of the 70s. Uh, you could say, well, this is a moment where it's the end of the American empire. Europe has resurfaced. Japan has resurfaced. Maybe somebody else can take over. What was really going on in Europe and Japan was they all recognized that a crisis for America was a crisis for them. They needed somebody to take responsibility, you know, to bring capitals together, to think about having like a G20 meeting so we don't leave here all uh, biting each other in the ass, but we actually agree we're not going to become protectionists. We need somebody to do all these things. We need somebody in the 80s and 90s. They needed somebody to act as the consumer of last resort. So, so, you know, they all recognized that they needed America to play this role. So they were hoping that America would correct itself through its crisis in the 70s and continue to play its role. And then on America's part, yeah, you find out that, you know, people are pissed off that uh, Japanese cars are getting shipping into the United States and laying off American workers. And at some point, you know, these are complicated things. America does do something. It puts a tariff on Japanese, a quota, I'm sorry, put a quota on Japanese cars. Well, some people read that, see, it's the end of free trade. Well, it wasn't. It was the only way you could keep free trade going was to, yeah, occasionally you have to throw a bone, you have to interject something to ease the kind of pressures that always evolve. But the point of it was to keep moving in a particular direction, get the Japanese uh, not not to close off the American market, but to actually put some pressure on the Japanese so maybe they'll invest in the United States, which they did. Then the U.S. gets some of that investment. But, of course, that can lay off people in the north because that investment comes in the south. So I'm, I'm just trying to emphasize one is that it's complicated. The other is that it changes in the course of the post-war period. After the post-war, a lot of American workers were actually – the AFL-CIO supported free trade. It supported it because – we're the most competitive in the world coming out of the war. Everybody else is flat on their back. We're going to have a field day. That was what a lot of you know, trade union leaders thought. So they actually supported free trade. And then it, you know, it took a long time before they began to have questions about it and reservations about it because things changed. The American advantage, you know, at that point in time, if there was restructuring, there was still a welfare state. The economy was growing, so there'd be other jobs to go to. Well, today it's not the same. You know, if if China picks up, you know, most of a sector, is it going to be replaced? Well, maybe in high tech, but that doesn't help me if I'm a, a manufacturing worker. So, you know, so things change. The burden changes and the burden has different impacts. It might have had an impact on small business at a time, but it's hard for business to, uh, you know, business falls in line. Small business falls in line with big business eventually because they're so dependent on it and material. It actually that's what really matters to them. but you know, the, the burden falls unevenly. And your point is really important. It is important to recognize that America does have a burden. Uh, you know, whether it's military payments, whether it's diverting technology into military instead of other things, whether it's losing certain sectors because they're moving to low wage countries. Uh, all those things are true. And there's a burden. And it may it's very uneven, but it does affect the working class. So then there's another question. Uh, was it possible to imagine saying, I, I think it was actually possible to say the question of how much of a burden we should have was always up for negotiations. Imagine somebody saying that, a president, and saying past presidents were too concerned with reproducing the empire and they were too generous to other countries. 
And, you know, I think it was possible to say, well, America probably has some space to negotiate with other countries to say that we've really picked up an awful lot of the burden. We want to renegotiate parts of it. And it's kind of what happens when you renegotiate a free trade agreement like the one with Mexico. And I could imagine saying, you know, we still want, but, you know, that would require you to say, look, we still want globalization. I'm getting a lot of pressure at home and I want to keep globalization. But to keep it, uh, we have to slow some things down. And you could imagine them maybe renegotiating it. But that's not what, but two things, two things got in the way. One thing is that Trump is mobilizing nationalism. And in mobilizing nationalism, you know, the rhetoric is scaring capital. It's, it's as if he's mobilizing people to actually challenge globalization, even if that isn't his intent. That's one thing that happens. And then the other thing that happens is in practical terms, you again begin to see that, well, it isn't so easy. You take a look at the relationship to Mexico. Mexico's auto industry has been booming. That's a big part of what happened to the American Midwest. It isn't China. It's actually Mexico. And the question was, well, you know, maybe you can negotiate more content rules for the United States. Yeah, you can still have trade. But the problem for Trump was he didn't want to hurt the American companies. Their strategy in terms of global competition had become, we have to have a lot of our business in Mexico. And as long as we have a lot of our business in Mexico, we can afford to keep some of it in the United States. So don't screw up Mexico. And then after everything was done in the talks with Mexico, almost nothing changed. There were some things that looked good on paper, like if a certain amount of content wasn't North American based, I'm sorry, that wages uh, had to average some level, which sounded like it would lead to Mexican wages rising, which wasn't going to happen. Uh, you know, other, it just, it, it was ludicrous. Nobody worried about it. The, the Mexican government was relieved at the new agreement. The American corporations were relieved at it. And Trump found out that if you want to actually make things a little bit better for Americans, you either had to do it in a completely different diplomatic way, which he wasn't going to do because he was doing this to mobilize people, not to actually change something, or you had to actually make fairly radical changes. Because uh, you couldn't just declare to people, okay, be nicer to us. Uh, you know, they would challenge him. What are you talking about? This is globalization. Just because you're losing, are you going to change the rules? I mean, you know, this is now institutionalized. So, you know, so that didn't happen. And that that's instructive, that there is a burden and it's real. And that's part of the frustrations of workers. And it isn't just globalization. When you unpack globalization, what you find out was, hey, wait a second. A lot of what workers are getting kicked around isn't because of what's happening globally. It's because of uh, auto jobs going to the American South. It's because of uh, cutting budgets domestically. It's because of taking away public sector rights. It's because of deunionization. A lot of this is neoliberalism domestically. So you can't just blame globalization. But if you want to take these things on, you both have to take on neoliberalism and recognize that Biden's probably going to return to it. That's his whole goal. He wants to be Obama and Clinton again. Uh, and and hope that everyone's happy that we don't have Trump, or worse. So uh, yeah, we have to recognize that. But to develop a program of the left requires a lot of thinking about what we mean by protectionism, what we mean by internationalism, how ready we are to raise questions like banks have to become public utilities. There have to at least be controls on capital. I mean, if you're not ready to start talking about controls on capital, so you're leaving capital to do whatever it wants and threaten you, basically blackmail you. You can't win. 
you can honestly say we're not ready to take over capital, uh, financial capital. We're not, we're not there yet. Okay, but you have to start talking about it so you can build a base. You might want to say, let's form a, a special bank to address the environment and put a levy on every bank based on how much we've given them as presents and create a new bank that doesn't have to worry about competitiveness and just uses the money on the environment and infrastructure. Okay, that's a step forward. But, you know, all these things require some radical policies, and then they require a question of how do you engage the working class? And the environment really raises that because a lot of the environmental language around the environment, in spite of the environmental movement being so terrific at putting it on the agenda, it is still slogans, a Green New Deal, a just transition for workers. This doesn't mean much. And therefore, workers can end up to be a barrier. This is all remarkably interesting. You can see how, you know, I, I keep thinking about, you know, maybe stopping and sort of trying to, you know, uh, break down the argument, but everything that you're saying, it doesn't sort of, it doesn't take us onto another thing. It just sort of gives another, puts another brick in the, in the overall edifice. You know, it's all, this is, you know, the brilliance of, of this model that you and Leo put forward in, you know, in its most complete version in the making of global capitalism. And it's, it's, it's no mistake that, you know, I, I'm not, I could be wrong about this. Correct me, please. Of course, I'm talking to the, the source that your next sort of major project following the making uh, was China. You guys put out a couple pretty big essays about China and the China issue uh, debate um, pretty pretty soon after the book came out and you kind of kind of wrapped up the, the book tour because that's that's the next the next uh, logical extension of this argument about the making of global capital as to whether or not China can do this and now of course we're on to the contradictions of, of the right and and the you know the the lack of capacities of of the left and and, and I mean this is all you know it might it might be dizzying to uh, a, an audience member who is relatively new to this stuff but still fascinating nonetheless just to put this on the radar screen to to think to yourself hey I'm not quite I'm not quite grasping all of this right now well, we should, we should. Um, but there's a lot out there that that I need to be that I ought to be very curious about this is when I first came across you know the argument uh, I, I heard both of you on Henwood's show in uh, 2011 I believe talking about this book for the first time. And, and I remember thinking to myself, I only caught about half of that, but there's a lot out there that I need to know about and put it on my radar screen. Yeah, you know, you I've, know sp I've spent the last decade trying to, trying to unpack it for myself. And I hope that those in the audience who are a little bit confused right now are having a, a similar experience. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I just a couple of things. I mean, one thing is that learning is actually hard. I mean, Marx has this, <laughs> Marx has this wonderful preface, I think, to the French edition of capital, I think it was 1872. And he, he just says that if you really want to get to the summit, you're going to have to, you know, dig through all of this and work hard. Like he wasn't trying to offer people an easy solution. So one thing is it's hard. It's hard, you know, it's hard work uh, trying to, to, to get at this and it's, and it's hard. And then, you know, and then things in it will change. I mean, things when it would be revised. I mean, it'd be great to see other people criticizing it, saying this was missed, this needs to be added, or you were wrong on this. The one thing I really want to emphasize is when, when I don't want to, I should say, in addition to theory, there is the question of empirical stuff. Like when somebody says, will China challenge the US? Our answer isn't, well, our theory says it won't. Our, our answer is, well, that's that's a question. And then when you look at it, and you look at the way China has been integrated, you would conclude at this point in time, 
that doesn't make a lot of sense. And but you know, in in the future it might. We have to watch how China develops. But I, I think one of the things to really think about is this dynamism in the world. Things are changing, and and you know, and there's all the question of class forces. So even when you raise the question of China now, you know, we talked about contradictions on the left, contradictions. There's contradictions in China. People tend to look at China and they just kind of project. China is growing at eleven percent a year, or whatever you know the latest numbers are, and you project that thirty years, and and you know, and China's it, and that's just not a way of looking at it because first of all, quantitative stuff doesn't tell you enough. Uh, you know, does China have to developing the capacities for China to superintend the world and to be trusted by capital and to create the institutions is one kind of a question. But then you have to ask the, about the contradictions in China. You know, Japan grew fast for a while. What are the contradictions in China? Uh, are there going to be contradictions from the working class as the working class develops? Are going to, there going to be ecological contradictions? Uh, are there going to be contradictions between capital in China that's on the on the coast and is where the development has been taking place as exporters and China trying to move inland, which may be different sections of capital. You know, will there be contradictions between the regions? You know, these are all questions to take seriously if you're trying to uh, understand things. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and not having, I mean, as I said, you know, I've gone on other podcasts. I've talked to other people trying to be a uh, a proponent of these thoughts and these ideas and talking to sp especially about state theory. And they say, okay, Adam, but what the hell is all of this? What is this? What does that mean? What does that mean to me? Why do, why should I care? I'm just trying to, you know, uh, win socialism out here in the streets. And I say, well, state theory is a roadmap. Um, it's not one that with any certain, now that's neat. That, that requires qualifications, immense qualification. <laughs> it's, it's more like a topographical map. Sam. Now, I'm not a survivalist by any stretch. I'm not even that outdoorsy. I used to be in my younger days. I'm quite indoorsy and uh, urban dwelling these days, but uh, somewhat embarrassingly. But to my understanding, a topographical map is a little different. It doesn't tell you where to go. It doesn't have a, hey, you know, this arrow points this way, this way to the goal, right? But it does tell you where the pitfalls are, or at least it gives you a sense of where they might be. Mm -hmm. It tells you where the summits are and where the mountains are, where you're going to have to have a steep climb, you know? And so that, that's kind of, to me, that's what a good state theory is in, in this kind of, um, this apparatus that you and Leo have developed in this book and, and beyond gives us a, a, a very, very good sense of that terrain. And so people say, why should I care about this, Adam? I'm a trade unionist. I'm a socialist. I'm an organizer. Well, you know, you don't have to have a topographical map uh, when you go to Antarctica or into the uh, Himalayas, but it sure would help to have one. <laughs> it sure would help. I guess, and, yeah, I, I would. I, that's a good example. And, you know, in terms of thinking about somebody doing work on the ground or a trade unionist, or, you know, somebody says, well, I hear you. You're talking about workers' control. I think we should take over our factory. Uh, and that's what you see. Like you see it, you know, from your own perspective. But, you know, what can happen is you start a co op and, uh, soon you find out you have to compete, otherwise you're not going to survive. And in order to compete, uh, democracy is kind of a barrier because an equality because you want to attract some really good people who have a lot of technical knowledge. So then you start hiring experts who you pay more. And the point of all of this isn't that your instincts were bad; it's that the context matters so much. You know, if you're a trade unionist, you can't just go to the members and say, "Well, if you're militant enough, you can win everything." That's not true. You can win if you're militant, you know, in addition to having strategy, but the context matters. 
if you win and you're uh, and uh, you know prices, the prices of the product go up, and therefore we can't sell the product, or somebody comes in and sells it cheaper, then what are you going to do? Uh, you know, when workers took over Republic Windows during the financial crisis, I don't know if you remember this, UE workers. I do, yeah. Amazing documentary. Yeah, uh, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's such an impressive thing because workers are sitting there and they're saying, what can we do? And this is what they did. And I would be completely supportive of it. When, when, when workers are facing something and they do whatever they can, uh, it's worth supporting. But it isn't a strategy. And the reason it wasn't a strategy is, well, first of all, if you're going to take over something, you shouldn't just take over what they don't want. You should be thinking about what do we really need to take over strategically. And that doesn't happen when you just do it spontaneously on the ground. The second thing is nobody followed up that story. And the reason was is because this was originally a feel-good story, and so everyone's happy. And they, But, you know, so two things happened. One is that it didn't spread. It didn't spread because, you know, things don't spread spontaneously. We didn't have a mechanism to go out and educate people. And even education wouldn't be enough to give them the confidence and the skills to do this and to overcome divisions, uh, to have the backing of a good union like Huey. So it didn't spread. That was one kind of lesson. You can't just look at your own little place. You had to be thinking bigger. But the more important lesson was uh, they couldn't survive. They ended up taking it over and it became a co-op. And I can't remember the numbers quite clearly, but I think what happened was they started with 250 workers and then ended up with 17 because they had to sell these windows. Right. People yeah. who've been selling them all the time. So one thing that happens is they go down to 17 workers and then it was a co-op. So they weren't covered by minimum wages. So they actually ended up to have below the minimum wage to survive. Yep. The lesson is not to pretend you're inspired by these examples. I think there's two lessons from it. One is we have to think about the context. Like where workers control, you know, might make some sense is in a, in a planned economy or at least where the government is the purchaser as a conscious strategy. So you have the support from the government where they're actually ready to say, we're not going to let in those goods because we're trying to develop a new capacity. So we're going to support you. I mean, so you need all kinds of supports. We're going to give you technical expertise. We're going to give you financial expertise. You know, I, I went to Argentina and I went through some of the worker-owned factories. And one of the problems they were having was they couldn't borrow money. Why couldn't they borrow money? Because they didn't actually technically have legal ownership rights. So they couldn't put up the factories as assets for borrowing money. So they needed a change in them actually having property rights, which they never actually had. They just took it over. So, you know, it just raises so many questions, which gets you to the state. How is the state going to support you and create a favorable environment? So that's a critical part of it. The other critical part is you have to become part of a socialist movement. So imagine a co-op that says, look, I'm doing this because of a lifestyle choice. I don't mind if I don't get very much money, but that's why I'm doing it. And I want you to join, not because I'm promising you that I'll give you cheaper milk. I'm asking you to join this because we're going to use our money that we get from you buying milk in our place, not to reduce the price of milk, but to do education and organizing. We're going to become part of a socialist movement because just making you into a, you know, a more comfortable consumer is nice, but it's not enough. And then co-op is integrated into a larger strategy. Then you can think of it more strategically. 
And, you know, so I think that's very important. Yeah. All of the stuff points back to the state, doesn't it? Uh, it points you, back to the state somehow... and it points back to, to agency and it points back mm-hmm. to strategy. They're all related. They're the same question. Yep. That's why Leo's life was based on studying the labor movement, studying the state and studying parties. Right. Yeah. It was all just just hopelessly in- interconnected uh, yeah. if you spend enough time here, yeah. um, you know, looking uh, at, at the real life, the real development yeah. of the of these things. Maybe. You know, there's so much to say here, but we've got to let you go. Okay. Um, unfortunately, obviously, come back very, very soon. Um, okay. You know, and uh, yeah. doing this on the occasion of Leo's passing is, is um, you know, you turn those lemons into lemonade and, 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 yeah. and continue as Leo would have wanted us to, undoubtedly. Yeah, and Leo left. Uh, Leo turn left this into an opportunity. Let Leo left a good base to build on, both in terms of his own work and in terms of the, you know, cadres of of people that he left out there whom some who didn't necessarily agree with everything and some who did, but are going to become very creative socialists of some kind. Right. The last question here, and this is a difficult one, and I hope that this doesn't require a recapitulation of everything you said so far, uh, but I'd be remiss if I let you go without it. It's, it's something br- I raised this issue when I was talking to Steve Marr last week, um, somewhat accidentally, but I realized that, this word capacities is something that was incredibly important to Leo and, and to you, um, having been a, a co-thinker and a co-writer, um, and often using this word. Um, you've you've raised it dozens of times on this episode, and it's something that sort of seems self-evident, but I do really believe that, it, you know, again, for, for two guys who, you know, are trying not to be uh, wrapped up in theoreticism, um, it's an incredibly rich piece of theoretical jargon, isn't it? And you know, I, I tried to, to talk about it with Steve as, as this kind of way of 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 it's this dialectical synthesis of structure and agency, which brings them both both together and and, and separate, and raises the kind of uh, demands and strategically. And uh, what does this word capacity mean to you? It's something that I realize is so sorely me, lacking. Yeah, let me give two examples because I think I think they're two different might be two different ways of thinking about it. There was a guy called Saint Simon who wrote about a decade before the Communist Manifesto. And he was a French utopian, uh, social theorist. And he said that when you look at workers doing their work, this is like in the 1828 maybe, I think it was a couple of decades before the Manifesto. He said, when you look at them, you have to say, how could people like this possibly make socialism? They're exhausted. Uh, they're tired. Their world is so small. They're fragmented from each other. Uh, and then he and then he asked an even harder question: What what would make anyone think that they even desire to do so? Where would the desire for something so radically different possibly come from, given their real life experience? And I think you know I, I've always that's that's always struck me that the kind of working class that capitalism makes. Uh, is made so that it's it can't do this. It's dependent. It's you know it 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 it, it uh, you know if you think there's another way of thinking of surplus value, which is not just that capital rips off your time, but that capital actually brings labor together socially, and that that's something that individuals can't do because he 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 has the capital and he has the equipment, so he can mediate bringing together social labor. 
And that's actually what he's being paid for. That's why he can extract something, because otherwise he would just be a, a ripoff artist and you could maybe just get rid of him. That makes it a real question. How are we ever going to develop collective capacities? So let me give my take on this. The vision of socialism that we have is a society that's structured to bring out all of our potentials. They may be different, but it really brings out the most we can be as human beings in the recognition that that's actually a collective exercise. That developing your capacities, you just have more of them when you do it collectively. So that's the vision. The vision is about a society that has a certain notion of capacities and potentials of human beings, what they can do, what how they can change their environment and their constraints and build something different. You know, the, the, the ultimately essential human ability to imagine something that doesn't exist and make it happen, something that we don't imagine, we don't see animals as doing. So there's that, that vision. Then there's the question of a critique of capitalism. Well, the critique of capitalism is that's exactly what it denies. When you sell your labor, forget everything else about capitalist democracy. When you sell your labor, you are giving up your potentials as a human being to somebody else. That's what makes it undemocratic. Somebody gets to control your potentials as an individual and the collective potentials of everybody because they're mediating it. So that's what makes it undemocratic. They're controlling your potentials and how your potentials will develop. Uh, what could be more of a problem than that? Because you know they're, they're controlling what you can become. And then the question becomes, well, how do you bridge the two? Well, you have to bridge the two because under capitalism, you don't develop the capacities to bridge the two. And so the, the whole point of a socialist party is how do you make the working class into the kind of agency that has the capacity, the, and, and I mean capacity in every sense. It has the capacity to understand, to analyze, to strategize, to organize, to debate in a comradely way. All those capacities to debate, you know, collective and individual capacities that they might be able to win a new world and then transform it. So that's how capacities pulls everything together. Now, on the specific question of state capacities, it emerges out of the fact that the state, and this is a very important part of, I think, uh, you know, thinking about Miliband and Palancis and differences, is the state isn't just, it isn't just who's appointed to the state to run it. It isn't just a sociological breakdown of who's in the state. And it isn't just a structuralist analysis that this is what the state has to do to make capitalism work. And it isn't just a, a class thing, you know, the way Palancis described it as a con con condensation of class forces, who's stronger in the state. It's actually that the state has developed some autonomous capacities to do things that nobody else can do. Capital can't do things like negotiate a free trade agreement. There are things that, you know, capitalism can't make certain markets. So there are things that the state does that capitalism can't do by itself. So it develops institutions and capacities, the ability to do things. Now, the kind of capacities it develops over time, first of all, they're relative because it can't just arbitrarily make some up. It depends on the actual context, which is capitalism. And that's the sense I would understand relative autonomy. It has some autonomy. It isn't just there to listen to what capital wants. It has some autonomy to actually do things, but they're always constrained by the fact that, well, it needs tax revenue to do it. It needs somebody to create the jobs because it's not doing it. So it's a relative autonomy. 
And it developed these capacities historically over time, which affects its culture and who's there and the nature of the institutions. And so then the challenge is the state that we take over doesn't have the capacities. You know, it has some, uh, it has some capacities that we can use. Maybe it can tax a little bit better, but it doesn't have the capacities to transform society, you know, to actually plan and plan in a democratic way. And, and, you know, I don't think Leo and I actually articulated this in terms of state capacities originally. I think it actually came from a student who, after one of our lectures, came up to, to, to me and, and asked me about how come we don't express it in terms of state capacities. And I thought, bingo, he's right. It's, it, that's the way to think about it, that, that the state develops certain capacities and it doesn't have others. And we have to develop. We have to invent them. We don't even know where they are. It isn't as if when we get to socialism, okay, we defeated capital. Now let's take off these books off the shelf and implement them. <laughs> we just don't know it because right. socialism itself is a process of discovery. And, you know, when you, you, you threw out that phrase, I don't think you were conscious of it earlier, and you said something better. Well, in a sense, the point of socialism is to say, we can't actually make the world we want because capitalism is a barrier. It tells us what kind of world we can make and what we can't make. So we have to get rid of capitalism. And then when we get rid of it, we still may not know how to make a different world, but we certainly can start thinking about how to make it better. And we can start imagining a process where we gradually make it better because, you know, there's going to be divisions amongst us. You know, someone's going to say, you're looking to too much equality. There's no not enough incentives because it's going to be an imperfect world. So, yeah, this question of openness, process, capacities, it's a very rich concept of thinking about things. Uh, and very useful, I think. For sure. If nothing else to come out of the book and, and your, your, you and Leo's work, of course, is, is just sort of um, the generative nature of it all, which I think really speaks to um, the legacy that he leaves behind and the one that you're still building. Um, and so I hope that this, you know, again, I, I would love to sit here and pick your brain for three more hours, but we'll have to, we'll have to leave it there. And I have one uh, other again, thing to say. Uh, yeah, yeah, please. Just because you're, you're, you're praising us a great deal, but I, I do want to say that, uh, you know, as we worked on the book, you know, obviously we're pulling from a lot of people and learning from a lot of people. Uh, but also uh, somebody suggested we start writing a couple of pieces and going out and trying it out. And that was very helpful. You know, we would go and give a talk. And so, you know, all these things really do become collective enterprises in a way. You know, people stand up and say, well, I don't understand what you're talking about. And that leads to another discussion. Uh you know, or somebody says, I don't agree with you empirically. You know, when you say America is not in an economic crisis, you know, and it's a perfectly legitimate argument. So let's argue about that. But, but it does mean you start asking, well, which statistics matter? Like when you look at it and you say, America's doing badly because it's importing so much more than it's exporting. I can say, well, wait a second. If you have a concept of empire, all statistics mean something else. So theory and statistics, you know, and, and the empirical, do come together together in a, in a particular way. Um, so yeah, in terms of Leo, I guess I, I just would end with saying uh, Leo really was a gift. He was a wonderful example that we should draw from. He's left so much we can draw on in terms of students and his own work. And, uh, you know, the, the struggle does continue. And there's a lot more to discuss, which we didn't get into, like the question of fascism and the far right, which maybe we could do another time. 
Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I just I have a, a pages full of notes that I scrawled down that we're we're just not going to have the time to get into. But I, again, I'd love to have you back on uh, here in the coming months and uh, and continue elaborating some of this stuff. We're going to be uh, this this road is set out before us with the Biden administration yeah. um, and, and in, in a new and no less um, pressing way. Uh, again, we're looking at the reestablishment of, of neoliberalism in, in a lot of ways. And so uh, it's going to be a tricky form of neoliberalism, though, isn't it? It's going to be one that, uh, you know, includes uh, it's looking like some social democratic reforms, lots of stimulus. Um, and so it's going to be hard to read yeah. and we're going to need, we're going to need some translation from, from the likes of you and others. And, and so. we're going to have to watch as it develops. I mean, I think that something can be social democratic for a while and come up against social democratic contradictions. And then the question is, then what, which, which will also depend on what the labor movement and the left does. And that's a wrap on today's DPS. I hope you guys enjoyed it very much. I know that I did, as you can tell, I am effusive with my praise of this man um not just sam gendon of course but leo panish they have absolutely transformed my political understanding and i make no apologies for the way that i you know speak about them and their work i hold it on a very very high pedestal guilty as charged and i think you should too that's what this series is all about this has been episode two of the leo panish tribute series I'm going to be having on, as I teased in the episode, Max Shanley to talk about Leo's work with respect to the UK Labour Party. I'm going to be having on Adam Hilton to talk about the Democratic Party. And uh, Adam is, of course, one of Leo's former students. And so he analyzes the history and the political economic foundations and the transformations inside and outside the Democratic Party in a forthcoming book. That's going to be out in March. I'm going to be talking to Adam real soon about that book to give you guys a little preview of the arguments therein. And as always, if you enjoy this program and you've made it this far, I'm guessing you do. Uh, this is a long one. Head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. I know there are a lot of podcasts and similar projects that are asking you for money these days, and that number is only going to grow, if not balloon in the next four years. But that's a good thing. It's a good thing in the sense that we have more options and more educational opportunities, but it can present challenges for people like me who have been out here for going on four years now, um, you know, as there is much more competition in the podcast media sphere. And I know that you only have but so much time to listen to these things on a daily or weekly basis, but I encourage you that if you do choose to continue listening to DPS in light of all of the other options out there, that you head over to patreon.com and subscribe. Links in the show notes as always, and we will see you next week. <laughs>